inarticulate. So I'll do a kind of rubbish introduction, which I never quite know what to say. What do you think should be? Well, you can edit that in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now I do need a jingle. Welcome to uh, another episode of This Writing Life, the podcast that puts writers in the spot and demands that they explain every inch of their writing process. And I'm sitting in the sumptuous surroundings of Reba on Portland Place. There are uh, sort of busts of, well, I say busts, obviously not actually sort of statues of heads. Um, beautiful sort of Art Deco-ish, is it Art Deco? Yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. And I'm here with Anna Smale, academic, poet, and now debut novelist, a hot property, <laughs> uh, for her first novel, The Chimes. And Anna has bravely flown all the way from New Zealand just for this podcast. She's actually <laughs> turning around at the end to go all the way yeah, home. Yeah, it's a huge thing to be invited <laughs> here, James. <laughs> Um, I basically stopped everything and dropped everything. You landed yesterday, so the first question that should be asked is, how are you feeling? Can you describe in in minute detail the the strange sensations of being suddenly in London, having been in New Zealand yesterday? I think the weird thing is it's it's so familiar. Like, coming in, I got picked up at the airport. It's very glamorous. Did you? Yeah, they had a a card with my name written on it. Finally. Yeah, I know. I've arrived. Um, And um, driving through London, uh, it was just amazing I mean sort of you know, these rushes of emotion because we left in quite a hurry and I didn't get to do the sort of full goodbye to London um, so that that was brilliant and I'm staying in like a far more chichi locale than I've ever sort of lived in before so it's Primrose Hill so I'm sort of uh, wandering around walked up Primrose Hill and just overwhelmed by how um, affluent everyone is actually <laughs> yeah. have you seen anyone famous yet no but I expect that will that will happen are you think, soon. are you kicking yourself for not having written a smart dystopian debut novel before when you were living in London? Yes, yeah, it would have been nice to have um, not had to travel 30 hours to, <laughs> to come here and then speak with you. Um, but no, I actually, I mean, I started it while I was living in London, okay. so it, it feels as though, yeah, it's um, coming, sort of closure, I suppose, coming back. Do you have the sort of eerie sense that you haven't actually left? I, when I, when I visit, revisit places, there's a sort of... Sort of a strange feeling that, that a life is continuing yes. almost as though you haven't without interruption yeah I think there's definitely that's a real sense of it um, I think if I'd been a bit more in an area like you know where we'd been living and um, you know I'd probably feel that a little bit more it does feel a bit like I'm on holiday because yeah as I say <laughs> from Rose Hill it's not, not, too, not, not too shabby but yeah definitely there's that odd thing where it, you just connect back into the the smells and the sounds and you know the movements and you stand on the right side in the escalator and and you, um, you know, <laughs> you, you see things which you've been so used to seeing every day. And what is the experience of jet lag? A 30-hour flight, you said there were two stops. Two stops, Brisbane, Dubai. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep you updated on how that goes. Um, I think I'm feeling relatively okay. I have a three-year-old daughter, so I'm not um, unfamiliar with the experience of sleep deprivation, as, uh, as I know that you are not either. Yeah, but it is just that slightly kind of fuzzy, floaty, slightly drugged feeling where your head feels like it's sort of one layer of it has been removed or something. Is there a connection to, and this is, I'm the king of terrible segues, and we should actually mention the <laughs> no, title no, no, of your novel, which I have in front of me, um, 
The Chimes, published by Hodder and Snowden, um, and we'll talk about it in, in, in one second, but it, mm. it recreates, or it, it creates a, a, a version of London. And I wondered if, if a slightly sort of odd, swimming, visionary feeling that you're, you're having now, mm. is that any way akin to leaving London and then recreating it yourself in absentia in, in New Zealand? Uh, I think so. I think there is a, um, a sense that, you know, there are so many multiple versions of London and um, definitely that sense of distance that I had from it when I was in New Zealand sort of helped me solidify it as a, as a sort of a, a fant- fantasy, as an imaginative place for me. I think it's, um, you know, living here, you've got, um, you've got the reality kind of pressing in on you always. But I don't know, I mean, I think coming to, you've always got a sort of an, a fictional version of London that you're walking around with so I think even before I came to London you have this especially as New Zealander you know when you you inherit so much of um, English literature and you read you know as a child you read it and you read it um, so you're always creating this sort of idealized slightly abstracted fantasy version of, of London in your head so yeah I think it's sort of an ongoing process but certainly there's a slight airiness of, about coming back mm. and and yeah seeing familiar places that are, that are, you know, that feature in the book. Oh, this sounds important. I mean, this is a novel, which I'm going to force you to describe in a second. It's a novel <laughs> no. about music. Was the sonic element of London always an important one for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one of the things when I first arrived, I'd come from Tokyo, and Tokyo always had a soundtrack for me, which was sort of wandering around. Listen, strangely enough, for some reason... German techno, <laughs> just just by pure German chance, techno. yeah, sort of Michael Mayer kind okay. of, yeah. <laughs> just just by chance, I think it was just what I happened to be listening to, and uh, just certain J-pop songs. That I mean, my experience of Tokyo was very much structured around you know walking places, being detached from culture in a way because you are as a foreigner there, mm. but also always having headphones on, always listening to to music and kind of that really soundtracking. There was a certain time, and I sort of. I can only really describe it as kind of a glamour or romance around Tokyo, especially when you've got that sort of piped-in audio and you, you sort of, you're kind of performing it, you're kind of characterising yourself as you walk around. And when I first arrived in London, I didn't know what the soundtrack was and it sort okay. of took me a while to find the particular London, that, that, that kind of romance. And sort of that evolved and it, it happened. But I think when I was living here, it was, you, you know, you're so sort of integrated into the into just your daily experience. I don't know how sort of aware I always was of the sort of sonic imprint of, of London. And it's yeah, definitely been on sort of going back and thinking about it. But coming, coming, returning, there are just things that, you know, they go really deep into you. So just, just you know, the accents and being in a cab and hearing somebody over the scanner, you know, sort of mm. talking and, um, yeah, and, and just, just the intonation of people's voices and the back and forth and, yeah, very much about spoken language here. Everything from just, you know, sort of walking around the park and hearing certain accents. <laughs> but I don't know, the soundtrack for London... German techno? No, <laughs> no, no, no German techno. It was kind of, actually, it was sort of suede. And, okay. um, no, I mean, a variety of different things. But I think sort of suede was that first kind of key into the kind of particular <coughs> romance because we were living um, around um, Highgate at the okay. time. Sort of, kind of opposite. So slightly whiny, <laughs> overly thin people 
going on about <laughs> nuclear sky. Oh, no, it's all like about that. nuclear sky. Something like that, it? yeah. It's a bourbon dogs running in the. Oh, hold on, that's a picture of one. Both of them. So we should talk um, incredibly, sort of rather gorgeous uh, cover. I don't know how, how this is going to look on the the actual book, but the chimes. This is the bit of the podcast where I, get, I can sort of doze off quietly or, or go get a cup of tea. Where, but I'm always quite curious mm. about writers describing their novel, um, not out of sheer laziness, but perhaps at, at a, s- a stage removed. What does the book mean to you? But uh, how would you, how would you, if Steven Spielberg turned up, how would you pitch it to him? Or um, how, how yeah. do you want to des- describe the chimes? Um, it's a difficult one. I'm pretty hopeless at the okay. elevator pitch. Actually, okay. I've never been very good at it. Good at it. It's delete. Um, yeah. <laughs> no. Um, I think you know. I mean, it's sort of. But it's, it, I guess it's possible with this novel because it is, it is kind of high concept. I guess you know, mm-hmm. it's that one of that, that idea that you can pitch it in a single sentence. So it's it's a it's a future London in which. The, the written word has been replaced with music and with the repercussions that that might occur to the human brain and to the human ability to structure experience and, and identity and memory. Um, and dominated, see this is far longer than a sentence now, nice. dominated by a um, sort of a vast music, yeah, musical instrument which is also a form of sonic weaponry and which has sort of major effects on the nervous system. And at this moment, in fact, someone's very helpfully illustrating this with sound. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm very impressed at the level of organisation that's gone into this podcast. I tell you, spend no, <laughs> no expense. I mean, an obvious question is: What is the problem with language that necessitates a society to reorganise? And this is a very interesting idea of a sort of the myths that build up around a society of of a time or an age of, of discord that mm. that had to somehow be be ended. What what was the problem with with, with language that, 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 that prompted this sort of change? I think it was it was this idea of the sort of multiplicity of language and the multi, the the kind of the variety of different interpretations and the, the way in which language doesn't hold still and is always up for debate and always up for question and and you know potentially corruptible in terms of intention and also in terms of understanding. But it was also, I think, not just language, but the way in which we transfer and store information uh, via language. Um, so as a kind of a prosthetic of memory, a written language, you know, it, it's evolved so much. You know, now we've got you know, digital technologies. So it was, it was very much an idea of pushing that to kind of extrapolating it to a, an extreme and seeing, you know, what might happen if, the, you know, with all of these conflicting and multiple versions of, of truth and ideas of, you know, and the way in which we communicate, we're sort of pushed to a point where, at which there is a, a form of chaos and, you know, and a backlash against that, I guess, in the sense of wanting to have a unified, dogmatic uh, hold so, on meaning. Perfect, sort of uh, an idealistic new society being born out of what a sort of corrupt yeah. decadent yeah it's, it's a familiar trope it's, it's a I mean it's a similar you know I don't want to sort of reveal my influences too mm. too much but um, Herman Hesse's The Glass Bead Game sort of has a similar uh, setup, I guess this idea that our tendency to 
for, for language or for meaning to become corrupted by human intention would sort of go to a place where there's a, a desire for a kind of stability, a kind of unity of meaning, and the along with everything that kind of comes with that. So the, the potential flattening of different voices, and, uh, potential extremism. One question that, that leaps to my mind, at any rate, is: Does this reflect your own view of what's perhaps? happening around us now is this an, is this a critique on not a sense that we've become corrupt mm. decadent appalling people <laughs> but that we're living in a, in a in a time where we are finding it or certain people are finding it harder and harder to to deal with nuance with uncertainty mm. we, we, we are you know this has been the, the year of, of of living with 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 isis of a return of a kind of fundamental fundamentalism where mm. where Interpretation, any form of interpretation, seems to be to run counter to. to, to was, was there a is there a sense this is reflecting your view of what's going on? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think it was. I don't really start with ideas as such. It was. Okay. It was never an intentional, you know, in any way, sort of a didactic or focused critique of contemporary society. I sort of tend, yeah, as I say, start with a kind of a micro idea of, of individual tendencies and sort of interested in, in extrapolating those. I think, in a way, it is a, if not a critique, a sort of a, a look at this idea that, that technologies, you know, we gain a huge amount, but, what, you know, the potential loss is also there. But I think, you know, there's this tendency to assume that progress is, is, is negative, um, you know, and this has happened with, with all forms of technology. Mm. So, you know, there's the old um, chestnut about, you know, writing and sort of, you know, the Platonic, you know, there's the Plato, Socrates, now I'm getting confused. You know, as a re- regretting that the, the, the written form of language would mean that the memory would deteriorate. But then, in fact, what happens, you know, typically is that it just shifts and our forms of memory change. Mm. And, you know, we can see this happening with, with online, you know, the way in which we interact with the written word now online. And there's, you know, been huge amounts of discussion as, you know, is Google changing our brains? Mm. And, and how, how is it affecting us, our short term memory? So I think it's sort of with a grain of salt. I think there is, there's always an evolution, there's always an adaptation, variety of different voices, the kind of democratisation of, um, of information that has happened through the internet is, of course, sort of incredible. And, you know, that ability to kind of have these multiple voices out there is, is, is essential. I think, though, there is a little nostalgia, sort of personal nostalgia there is for me because... I find my own brain atomized by the experience of <laughs> online reading. You know, I, I personally, you know, because you know, I'm, I'm of a generation that didn't, you know, have mm. have the internet um, when I was born, obviously, um, and you know, so I'm not, you know, of that digital generation. So maybe I haven't sufficiently evolved, but I miss that insulated, immersive mm. experience of reading, and I do think that there is a sort of a memory correlation there of, of the physical acts of reading and you know picking up a book physically turning the pages that mm. somehow for me is a crucial component of how I remember this, this wonderful thing about reading is that you can pick up a book and, and the world drops away the problem about reading online in fact last uh, last time to get Jonathan Regal I had to read his book on my computer right. um, and did constantly find myself flicking back and forth to, to Google to check football results and check email <laughs> And it's an it's an inevitable problem about about the sort of link culture of, mm. of, of the internet. Was there something about this? I mean, this is a, this is very much a novel where memory is 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 all but but absence been completely destroyed by by the kind of immersive idea of, of one store 
one story. Yes, yeah. Is, is, is there an alarm? I mean, you have, as you said, you've got a small daughter who will be part of the, the digital. Either, either, I'm not saying whether this is a good or a bad thing, but she will be, perhaps her brain will be different yes, in rea- yeah. relation to the past. Week. I do think so. And it's, I mean, it's interesting to, to think about and to see what might happen, I think, to be aware of. Because, you know, there is, and I think there is a certain amount of concern that I have for the ways in which digital technology is being privileged. I mean, in New Zealand at the moment, there's been recent, as I know there have been here, um, cuts to libraries. So the National Library's services to schools, which is, you know, has been a crucial part of New Zealand education, uh, have just been, have been cut. So you know, teachers can't now go and get specific non-fiction books and bring them into the classroom. Instead, they've got links and they've got um, some digital services. And that, that does worry me. I think, you know, there's, I'm not talking about inhibiting child's ability to interact with, te- with digital technology and with computers, obviously, but, um, yeah, I, mean, it, I do think that it is shaping the way we think. Certainly I can see it in myself. Um, mm. And I do think that, that experience of immersion in a, in a fictional world to me, it's synonymous with reading a physical book, mm. um, and I, I find it, as you say, like I find it very difficult. Even a Kindle, I find quite <laughs> it's just a different experience. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not syncing up. But you know, I still find um, iTunes. <laughs> I want the physical thing of going and getting the you know, whatever it is, a, a record, or you know, there's something about those physical movements that, to me, seems kind of a mnemonic process. Tension in the novel, in, 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 in perhaps in this idea of reading. And on the one hand, this is a very, very ambitious novel about fractured memory, and I think enacts the our hero Simon's battles to, to constantly try and recapture his the fractionedness of his mm, memory. Mm. And on the other hand, there's a, a sense that at the heart of this is a desire for linear narrative. Yes, yeah. But there is something about linear narrative which is it's easy to kind of almost pass over the sort of yeah. joys of, oh, of utterly, getting yeah. from A to, A to B. Yeah, and, and again, sort of pulling into that idea of like an immersion as well, of that, that desire to kind of escape into story. I mean, it was quite a conscious decision for me. I'd finished my PhD, I was working sort of part-time as a lecturer in creative writing, but also in a kind of unstable working situation. And I was very much like at a crossroads. I was mm. trying to work out what it is that I was meant to do. Right. <laughs> Always felt a bit sort of square peg and round hole in, in an academic space. And um, what, I don't know, there was a hesitation, I suppose, to commit to, okay, that's my career path. And I think, you know, this has been something I've been thinking about and sometimes agonising over since stopping music. You know, what is my, what is my career? I didn't reach a point where nothing hugely appealed. I was, you know, I, I was meaning... I was meant to be um, taking my PhD and turning it into a monograph nice. but you know the, the motivation for that was relatively low and I was yeah working like a variety of jobs um, none of which were you know at all vocational apart from the creative writing teaching you know I was hungry and I was hungry for something quite specific and I, I think I was hungry for that that experience in childhood of, of reading and of being read to and the story totally I mean I'd come through you know writing a, a sort of Relatively theoretical thesis about you know contemporary American poetry. Who um, who, who was the, th- the thesis about? Uh, it was about so four American poets: so um, Joy Graham, James Tate, Louise Glick, and Frank Bidart. Oh. Yeah, who were fascinating and wonderful poets. But you know it was it was quite 
dry, not dry, but it was quite dense. Okay. And it was, um, you know, it was, it was very, uh, it required a huge amount of commitment. And, you know, I, I think I was just uh, hungry for something quite different. So, yeah, it, there was a definite sense in which I was returning to story as opposed to, you know, sort of my experience of the more sort of fragmented poetry. I was, I was desiring to, you know, and, you know, all of the poetry that I was talking about is very sort of anti-narrative, you know, because narrative is, <coughs> is you know, is the empire, and narrative is, um, <laughs> you know, the, the self, and, and, you know, impacting upon the world. And um, the hesitation to, to give narrative power, you know, sort of post-structuralist ideas of narrative as monolithic and, you know, Okay. malevolent potentially <laughs> potentially <laughs> just enjoying it again just just going back to something that gave me pleasure so let's talk narrative in terms of the origins of the book you mentioned your own uh, relationship to music yes. um, is that is, is that one of the starting points um, it was definitely music? I mean it sort of underlies the, the book entirely um Although, in, in sort of not hugely, I guess, autobiographical ways, but you know, I mean, it does always tie back to personal experience. So, yeah, no, I, I grew up from quite an early age playing the violin. Where, where, where were you born? And uh, I was born in Auckland, okay. in New Zealand, and started playing the violin. I started playing the recorder from about five, violin seven. So not not hugely, hugely kind of child prodigy young, but but fairly <laughs> early, relatively. <early. laughs> And it was one of those things where, you know, it, it was wonderful, I'd always enjoyed it, but then I think around the age of maybe 13, 14, you know, I was quite a sort of intense, I guess, relatively kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of solipsistic teenager and was really seeking, you know, you know, if, I, if I'd been religious, I probably would have tried to join nunnery or something, but I was seeking this all-consuming um, place, you know, this, this, this focus, a place to put all my energy and all my idealism. And music became that for me. So, in a way, it was less to do with my own abilities as a violinist, which were, you know, I mean, I had sort of quite significant technical problems. I wasn't, I was not, I was not a child prodigy. You know. I was, I was an okay violinist, and I sort of pursued it. But it was always hard. It was always a bit of a struggle. I think my early experience with music was always a bit of a, a tug of war, a bit of a, a kind of battle. I had this very idealistic sense of. You know, music has this pure and um, elevated and, you know, this, this thing that I wanted to rise up to. And, and often, you know, I had this very strong sense of what it was I wanted to express through, through music. But also this, this, this sense of a body that was not necessarily, you know, obeying my behests, you know, sort of um, technically being held back, being somewhat handicapped, you know, my fingers not moving fast enough, my, or my bow arm not being, con- you know, as controlled as I'd want. And I'd have always this kind of this battle between yeah what I'd hear in my head, and and, and sometimes be able to recreate. You know, it was it was I wouldn't have kept going if I'd not felt uh, an, you know an improvement and ability to kind of sometimes manifest these these. What were those moments like? Where transcendent, okay. like yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, as I say, I was quite sort of I guess um, immersed in it in this this world. But there's something. I mean, there's the the sense of. Um, almost a meditative quality of, of playing and then I think that, that that kind of deep concentration is immensely rewarding in some kind of mental synaptic mm. kind of way so you do reach these points where you feel tremendous sort of creative 
piece, I suppose. Was that different, the idea of creating and interpreting music mm. from listening to music? Or was that a, was it a, of a... Of a they, they're always very, very related. So I would always... Um, I think when I, was, when I felt at a point where I interpreting a piece in a way that I wanted, the experience of listening to music was similarly kind of immersive. I could sort of project myself into the, into the music. You, you know, you almost feel like you're playing it when you're listening. It's never quite as satisfying, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a similar thing of kind of recreating in some way. And there is that, always that odd thing with music as a performer that you are not... You're not creating, you are interpreting. And it is a, it's an interesting tension there, actually. But there's, there's just this wonderful thing when, you've, when you can sort of hold a piece of music in your head. You move from the very uh, sort of detailed physical elements of you know, perfecting a, you know, a couple of bars of a, a rhythm, but then you've got this overarching sense of how that will fit into a bigger piece and the structure of that mm. piece. So it's 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 really good for your brain. I, I need to go. I need to go back and, and start playing again. Because do you not play at all now? No, I don't actually. No. Now was this because at some point you decided to stop as a, a yes. teenager? Yeah, yeah. And sorry, I didn't really kind of get to the next point sorry, of actually no, answering no, your question. No, I um, you know, I, I was accepted for a performance music degree, and that had been you know the goal all along. I've been sort of pushing towards this, fighting my sort of personal battle with music to get to this point. And I got in and suddenly I didn't know what I was doing. I sort of, um, I freaked out basically. I was sort of very dear in the headlights and I kind of, you know, realised that this would sh- shift my, what I was doing. I was very much heading towards music as a kind of a career goal and it was, I guess it was just my, my, ideal, my ideals and my kind of fantasies, my version of my role with music suddenly was incompatible with the actual reality which was you know, going to a university, being um, being um, taught by this fairly um, uh, strict and um, exacting Polish <laughs> violinist who didn't speak terribly much um, much English and was incredibly <laughs> slightly dictatorial. And it just, you know, I just it was just it was a it was a kind of crisis point for me. And I suppose then was when I realised that it was, you know, that that difficulty of reconciling the physical and the emotional sides of music for me wasn't going to work and I guess at that point um, music became other and it kind of became hard to access and I actually found it very difficult to listen to music at that point Interesting. yeah um, so I, I sort of pursued that for a year and passed and to a certain extent you know you know I mean I, I improved no doubt and but yeah there was just a realization that I could you know I couldn't reconcile those two things I couldn't um, I couldn't operate at the level that I wanted to and did a certain kind of joy go out of it yes oh yes okay. yeah yeah it was very much you know because what happened essentially was that you know they said okay you know you, you, you got into the degree you, you know a great very musical interpretation of um, as a Brahms sonata that was my audition piece and then like basically raised everything that I learned so it's sort of like stripping you back to basics technically so I had to relearn how to hold the violin how to hold the bow and so you're going from this point of where you you sort of you know as a, idealistically seeing this instrument as the kind of mechanism of some kind of personal yeah. kind of creative expression to I can't even physically hold the thing you know I can't everything was under, and it felt very much like a kind of a, a slightly apocalyptic you know <laughs> you know like it's sort of a ground you know raising yeah. you know it sort of had to start from ground up and I I, I guess I didn't have the the um, you know I because I'd been uncertain anyway about this as a vocation, you know, it was always sort of up to question, for question. 
I guess that point, you know, I seeded it. You know, I didn't really see it as um, something that I was willing to sacrifice everything for. So was there a sense of, I mean, you were saying you couldn't even listen to music, was there a sense of crisis at that point, and, and, mm. and, and how did you confront it? Yes, yeah, it definitely was. I mean, it was also, like, the first, you know, I was 17, 17 right. 18, so it was, you know, leaving home for the first time, everything sort of brought into question, I suppose. Yeah, it definitely felt, it felt, to tell you the truth, kind of like, well, at the time I understood it as an existential kind of crisis, like it felt very much ground up, you know, everything, sort of the way in which I think, the way in which I understand knowledge and myself as a person and memory and um, emotion was all very much in mm. flux. So I got out of it, I think, you know, I re- what I realised in that sort of emotional experience was that whereas music wasn't a kind of a, a natural form for me of expressing these things because it was so kind of under attack and potentially kind of um, fraught was that you know the only way in which I could come to terms with any of the sort of things that were floating around was through language. So I wrote my way through it, I guess. I just you know I kept. So literature was. Yeah, and in a funny way, not actually literature. What I experienced then was um, you know in the way that you know you require a kind of stability personally to actually apprehend a musical idea. I think the same thing. You know, you need actually kind of a coherent, stable self in order to um, apprehend and appreciate mm. literature and so in some ways I mean poetry I could read but I couldn't you know I was not actually reading a great deal of fiction at that time either but I was writing so I mean I was keeping journals and I think you know there was a sense that that was a kind of a lifeline like I knew that you know it was still under question in some way mm. you know, but language was kind of what I could Used to. Gave a sense of order to. Yeah. Because I mean, that's an incredibly personal thing. The yeah. way that the technique that you use to play your to play a violin or play mm. an instrument, or you know, if you're a sportsman, I guess the te- the idea of technique is also related to who you are. For, yes. To have someone pull that apart must have been. I can see that would be could be potentially devastating. Yeah. It was. It was quite destructive, and I don't think it sort of has to be. I think certain people, certain characters, would just see that as you know a necessary thing. But I was, I was sort of quite bad, I suppose, at separating out those, mm. like the sense in which I was emotionally invested in myself as a musician and the, the technical side. Because, you know, there's a lot of magical thinking that goes on where there was for me as a violinist. You know, I was sort of, it's very, it's a, then, you know, this is where the idea for the book really starts mm. emerging, the sense of um, how do you separate out, you know, the emotional and the physical. You know, I would, I would have a, a good you know, every, when you're playing the violin, so intensely, everything kind of comes down. To, like your day would change if you had a really good practice mm. or a really bad practice, and it sort of colours everything. And so it's very hard to, you know, your emotional, the mood in which you're in, changes. To you know, to me, change the way in which I play, and then you'd, certain sort of ways of thinking about things would you'd alter the mm. way in which you kind of technically manifested things. Um, mm. I think. I think. Real, you know, good musicians, good performers. Uh, that's one of the things they can do. Is, is you know, perhaps they never see a, a distinction between those two things, and there is that sort of sense where, you know, a certain child genius, you know, that that kind of immersion in music means that you don't, you know, you're all, those two things are always integrated. But I think there's also a greater confidence, I suppose, in oneself as a musician and mm. the, the ability to kind of, you know, separate those two objectively is is, is increased. 
and that makes its way partly through to a relationship that happens towards the end of the novel between Lucien, who's the enigmatic, uh, slightly hard to place, and I don't want to in any way spoil who Lucien is, but, and his sister Sonia. Mm. In a way, Lucien sort of is a definition possibly of, of what a genius mm. might be, someone mm. for whom music came easy, who could adapt technique to... Sonia's had to work much, yeah. much harder um, and, and can attain a certain kind of mastery, but perhaps it's always going to be somewhat limited. Um, yeah. Is that partly where that, what, what you were just talking about, came through? Yeah, definitely. I think I've always been sort of quite interested in the relationship between you know, all what, what it is that takes somebody to the next level, what kind of defines genius. Or... I think it's probably just photography. Yeah, right.